I'm Marshall Kozloff. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Mike, who are we chatting with this week? We are chatting with uh, Tony Badran. Tony, we're inviting you back uh, to Counterbalance, which is still the fastest growing podcast in America. I won't ask you, I won't tell you how it's growing, but it's growing in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Uh, And uh, uh, Marshall, we're gonna talk to Tony about Lebanon, but in particular, we're gonna talk about the Biden administration's uh, latest initiative in uh, in Lebanon, led by Amos Hochstein. Uh, Tony uh, is uh, uh, a native Lebanese. He's now a naturalized uh, uh, American. And he has what I consider to be a very uh, intelligent take on what's happening. Um, and I wanted to try to get his uh, views out to as many people as as possible. So, Tony, I would love for you to just actually start by explaining what you would define as the status quo um, in Lebanon for listeners who likely aren't following um, the goings on in the country day to day. And then we could get into the specific approach the administration is taking. Sure. Well, first, thanks for uh, having me back. And uh, so Lebanon, just a couple of weeks ago or or so, uh, went through uh, a parliamentary, finished a parliamentary election. uh, And uh, it, it, even though Lebanon is an insignificant country, uh, the election received tremendous uh, attention uh, in Washington. And it was hailed across the board in especially in initial reporting before even all the votes were counted um, as a major blow to the terrorist group Hezbollah, which is the most powerful actor in Lebanon that dominates the country totally, uh, I mean, in every respect. And uh, this was this message that the election was going to be a blow to Hezbollah had been hyped up well before the election, right? So b- that's why before the votes were in, there was a confirmation that indeed the election had dealt a blow to Hezbollah before anyone really paid any attention to what, what was going on. Um, in fact, of course, elections don't deal a blow to Hezbollah regardless of their of their results because Hezbollah's power is not based on elections or not. But even within that logic itself on its own terms, that conclusion was false. Hezbollah continues to have the largest uh, and most coherent bloc in parliament uh, with its allies, of course. It actually, with its uh, other Shia ally, the Amal movement, it swept all 27 Shia seats that are allocated to the Shia in the Lebanese sectarian quota system uh, uh, and uh, added more votes than what it had received in 2018. Um, so it was completely secure on on the Shia side and add you know and, and, and introduced a new array of allies in its coalition. Um, after the election, immediately it put to test its ability to continue to wield influence and to have to to pull together a majority if it needs to by re-electing uh, its longtime Shia ally uh, Nabih Burri, the Speaker of Parliament, to uh, to yet another consecutive term. 
Uh, and now they're preparing a way to start consultations on a new government. And then in October, uh, there will be new talks to elect a new president. And Hezbollah is in the driver's seat on all of these things. So the idea that Hezbollah has been dealt a blow was just, just a ridiculous talking point uh, for activists and people who deal with Lebanon from that lens uh, and who want the outside world to continue engagement and investment in Lebanon by leading them on that this, there is a path that you can take to weaken Hezbollah. If only you would do this, if only you would invest more, if only, et cetera. So uh, this is important in, in terms of, in terms of the, uh, the, the point about the predominance of Hezbollah, uh, because it has direct bearings on what's going on with what Mike mentioned in terms of the uh, situation with Israel as well, because Hezbollah has been also uh, in the conductor's chair uh, uh, on this file as well. So, Tony Badran uh, of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, a think tank in Washington, you are telling us that um, this talking point was put out by the Lebanese who want to see for they, their economy is in um, uh, is in free fall. It's a horrendous economic situation. They want uh, to promote as much investment in the country as possible. Uh, and so they are pretending that investment will uh, will somehow weaken Hezbollah when from your point of view, uh, if I read you correctly, uh, actually Hezbollah is just going to benefit from any uh, uh, from any investment. Is that right? Uh, yes, but let me just clarify something. When I meant investment, I don't just mean uh, financial investment. I mean that is obviously that. But and and it's and when I say financial investment, I don't just mean financial investment in terms of stimulating the economy. Let's say, right? What I mean by investment is both political, social, emotional, psychological as well, definitely, as material uh, investment. And there are different target audiences for these things, right? One of the primary audience in this particular case was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia had written off the Lebanese since uh, Mohammed bin Salman became uh, uh, you know, crown prince and, and de facto, if you like, ruler of Saudi Arabia. He broke with Lebanon. They saw Lebanon as a complete, correctly, mind you, as a wasted investment. This is an Iranian satrapy. Our money there only uh, props up an order run by Hezbollah. There is no play for us to be had through Lebanese politics to uh, constrain the role that Hezbollah plays out of Lebanon that damages Saudi national security or affects Saudi security directly. So they wrote them off in uh, 2017, they, they were preparing to give uh, $4 billion to uh, the darling of Washington, D.C., the Lebanese Armed Forces. And that was very much encouraged by the United States that they do so. And they said, no, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. And since then, the first, the you know, top priority for the Biden administration, along with the Macron uh, presidency in France, uh, has been to get the Saudis to reopen the spigots and reinvest. Why? To underwrite America's and France's investments with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, that might sound weird. America's invested in Hezbollah in Lebanon. Yes. The difference is the French do so openly, right? Macron went in September 2020 to Lebanon and said openly to has met with Hezbollah 
MPs and said openly, I want to work with you to rebuild Lebanon, whatever, okay? So the French have no qualms about dealing directly with Hezbollah and the French will come to this. This is relevant to our conversation because the French have uh, multiple investments, including in offshore energy in Lebanon. Uh, the United States similarly uh, has that uh, attitude, but it has to dissimulate because uh, the United States uh, has designated Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. It's against the law for Americans to meet with Hezbollah. So uh, the Americans have come up with a nifty uh, conceit uh, that allows them to do so. They call it the Lebanese state. So uh, America can deal with the Lebanese state, which is not, not only just totally dominated by Hezbollah, but in which Hezbollah participates. And at the same time, claim that everything it's doing, it's for the Lebanese state. It's not for Hezbollah, it's something separate. In fact, if anything, what it's doing with the Lebanese states will hurt Hezbollah and weaken Hezbollah. So it's a nice, it's a nice game to allow the US government to negotiate and to deal with Hezbollah openly. And I'll come to specifics that are directly relevant to uh, Amos Hochstein's uh, uh, effort in Lebanon on this very point. Uh, so those, so there is, a, there's a need for investment to have the Saudis come back and pour money. And in that sense, the United States and France are playing the exact same game that the Lebanese are playing to try to embroil the Saudis back into investing in Lebanon. They're, they're all on the same side in that sense. Just bring back the Saudis, let them reopen the spigots and pour money into Lebanon so that we can kind of stabilize the situation and go about our business uh, with the Iranians for the United States and, and uh, uh, with Hezbollah, uh, specifically in Lebanon. I'd love for you actually to talk, speak more about France's relationship to Lebanon. I think a lot of folks, um, because it was still kind of during that weird in-between COVID period, probably saw on Twitter, you know, President Macron like walking through the streets, uh, like very directly intervening in the political system. So can, you, can you speak about the French context? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, note the historical uh, relationship that France has with Lebanon, you know, Lebanon started off under, you know, in the post-Ottoman period under a French mandate before it gained its independence. And uh, so uh, there, there's, you know, Lebanon is a francophonic country. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, the Lebanese are pretty much all over the world, you know, but there's a, there is a relationship obviously with, with, uh, with France and the, the missionary uh Catholic schools and universities and so on. So there is there is a, a, a deep and long relationship uh, with France, uh, but but Lebanon also offers uh, you know an opening for France um, through multiple avenues uh, of investment. Uh, for instance, um, the French are present in Lebanon through UNIFIL, the UN so-called peacekeeping force, the interim force in Lebanon that is deployed in South Lebanon. Uh, they, uh, they participate in that. They have, uh, like I said, uh, offshore uh, investments uh, with, through the French uh, energy giant uh, Total, for instance. So they are, uh, you know, which, which is part of a broader uh, chain of investments in the Eastern Mediterranean. So Lebanon represents the easternmost uh, uh, node in that chain of, of investments in offshore energy. And this is something that is very important for France, the Eastern Mediterranean, especially as it, you know, it had its, um, it, it, it plays a big role, not just in terms of energy security, but it's of uh, France's own 
power plays, inter-European power plays and how it deals with Turkey and how it instrumentalizes Turkey to advance its position in, in inter-European power politics and so on. So the Eastern Mediterranean is important. And having that node in Lebanon similarly is, is important. Uh, they have used, uh, since the destruction of the port and that visit that you mentioned of Macron walking through the streets, which is when the explosion happened in Beirut uh, in August 2020 that destroyed half of the city. Uh, well, no, not quite, but a little less than that. But anyway, destroyed part of the city. And... Um, and the port. And so now you have a French, another French giant, uh, shipping giant that has taken uh, management of the port. Uh, you know, the Lebanese, incidentally, through a, a minister in the government nominated by Hezbollah, who holds French citizenship, who was very active with the French in making sure that they secure that bid in, in, in Lebanon. They also uh, operate the Tripoli port and a Latakia port, which are, which especially the Latakia port is very important for Hezbollah smuggling and has been historically. Uh, so uh, there's that. There's now more investment in transport, potentially in electricity. So there's, it's multifaceted and it's important. Uh, for, it's not crucial, but it's important for French uh, interest in the Levant. Tony and I, uh, Marshall, we, we wrote an article a while back in Tablet where we discussed uh, some of the French uh, uh, strategy. And w one thing that I found uh, interesting in the work that we, uh, we did uh, was what Tony just mentioned, the, um, the way all of these plays by France in the Mediterranean are also part of uh, uh, a power play inside the European Union. So if you if you think of all French foreign policy, the the principle of French foreign policy is how to get a leg up over Germany, and how to convince the Germans to invest in French in French defense industries. That's a little bit reductive and crude, but there's an aspect to this. And uh, the French have clearly calculated that you know Germany is not a Mediterranean country, uh, and Germany barely has a navy. Uh, so France can France can become the leader. If the European Union is um, you know is dominated by France and Germany, then France can become the leader of the Mediterranean powers, um, and Lebanon is part of that. I just find that uh, I, I find that uh, very interesting. But anyway, Tony, let's get to let's get to uh, Amos Hochstein and the Biden administration's policy. First of all, who is Amos Hochstein? And he's in Lebanon as we're speaking, I believe, or he's just left, perhaps. What's he doing there? And uh, why Why do you find it uh, troubling? So, uh, yeah, I think he just left. He was there yesterday. Uh, Amos uh, Hochstein is the Biden administration's special envoy for energy security affairs or something. I forget the exact title, but he handles energy for them. And... Um, uh, he had been uh, a mediator on this very issue, the delineation of the maritime border between Israel and Lebanon. Uh, he was doing it, he was handling that file in 2015 and 16 and on the sort of the tail end of the Obama administration. Uh, and in that role, he was actually, he had actually succeeded uh, Fred Hoff, who had been the earlier media, the first mediator uh, in circa 2012 to try to resolve this maritime dispute between Israel and Lebanon, which arose as a result of 
what had happened circa 2010 when Israel started to discover energy, offshore energy, okay? And Lebanon and Cyprus had an agreement and in 2007, and the Lebanese and the Cypriots, uh, you know, agreed on a border uh, point. And then Cyprus and Israel had their own bilateral agreement, and they agreed on a different. Uh, they, uh, and they and they used the same uh, agree uh, point that the Lebanese had with the Cypriots. But since these types of disputes are always bilateral, the Lebanese and the Israelis had to settle their own uh, uh, disputes or, or their, uh, delineate their border. And the Lebanese, which had initially started with the Cypriots on, you know, point one, let's say, now they said, actually, it's, it's going to be point, what's called line 23. So if you think of it as a triangle that with the starting point in the southern tip of Lebanon, and one goes, let's say, up towards Cyprus, and the other one let's say on another 30 degree angle that spreads out, creating a triangle of circa 860 square kilometers. That is the disputed area. Fred Hoff comes in and proposes to split it 55-45 for the, in favor of the Lebanese. Lebanese get 55, Israelis get 45. Um, the Lebanese, by the way, who never ratified their agreement even with Cyprus, right? So everything with the Lebanese is it's just, uh, as the kids say, LOL words. Uh, it, none of it really is, you know, nothing is real. Um, and so they, uh, they never ratified it. And so uh, everything's up in the air. This is what Hoff did. They didn't accept Hoff's uh, uh, proposal either. Hochstein comes in in 2015, 2016, doesn't work out. This goes to sleep during the Trump administration until literally... One month before the election, in uh, October 2020, the uh, brain trust at the State Department decided then, one month before the election, that it was going to now move on this issue and restart talks between Israel and Lebanon right before they lose the election and hand it over to Team Obama again. Uh, now, the reasoning for the Trump... Team, uh, team Obama, meaning team, team Team Biden, which is a revamped Team Obama. Yes, uh, it's not even... Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want to make sure everybody's following along with you. Yes, yes. Uh, by Team Obama, I mean the Team Obama that is now in the Team Biden. Uh, and um, they, um, their reasoning for it is... And this is an important point because this goes back to the Hoff, uh, why Hoff began it, why Hoff was asked to do it, all the way to the present through the Trump State Department, the Pompeo State Department. So this is a shared premise in D.C. It is all about uh, getting Lebanon to make money, right? It's not actually, it has nothing to do with Israel. You know, Israel has its own fields. They're well in Israel's economic uh, zone. Um, it just doesn't add anything to the Israelis. This is all a pro-Lebanon effort by people who are socially and emotionally invested in Lebanon, which is why I noted that aspect of the investment as well. And they tried to spin it at the time as some sort of an Abraham Accords adjacent uh, effort 
whereby by getting the Israelis and the Lebanese to meet together at the UN headquarters uh, and have kind of almost face-to-face talks under US auspices uh, was yet another installment in the train of Abraham Accords successes. But it was also explicitly to get the Lebanese to sign the deal because it was thought, look, it's a no brainer. You guys are bankrupt. You had this explosion. You're just, you're finished. So who wouldn't sign this agreement now, thought the brain trust of the State Department. Of course you will sign the agreement and you can now make money and that will be fantastic. Uh, for you, Lebanese. And of course, the Lebanese said, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, because uh, first of all, you guys are on your way out. So first of all, we won't be talking to you anyway. That was, of course, that was, of course, the same thinking that produced the JCPOA, uh, where it, it, it's, it's, you know, on the assumption that the uh, Iranians would make s- significant concessions on their nuclear program because they were offered great riches Yes. And the the riches would be the riches would mean that they would that they would uh, moderate themselves politically. Right. And, and in, let's in be the clear. End, in the end, we gave the great riches without the moderation. Right. On the assumption that the moderation will come, it yes. will come. But what's interesting here is that it's we're talking about the same players, right? They don't say it, and that again, we go back to that conceit, that fictional uh, firewall that they in their mind create. Uh, profess, they know that it's not true, but they profess that it is, that you have Lebanon separate and then Hezbollah separate. Meanwhile, Hezbollah would have access to all this money by law, not through by muscling in on it, by law as a as participant in parliamentary politics, municipal politics, and, uh, admin, and in the administrative state, by law, they have access to the budget. So these people were looking to enrich Hezbollah de facto, by definition, uh, 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 in, in, in um, I mean, de jure, by definition, in this case. They, by putting, by saying we want Lebanon to benefit from offshore money, that means we want Hezbollah to benefit from offshore Right. That's part of the equation. It's, it's an important thing as it will become clear as we discuss uh, Hochstein's uh, um, uh, effort. I, I actually want to go back to something you said at the very start of the episode, which I can't stop thinking about. You referred to Lebanon as an insignificant country, which to listeners of a podcast on this topic is is, is going to be a little bit of a, a weird feeling. But also thinking back myself as like a non-expert on the region we keep hearing about Lebanon in all these different contexts. Um, so can you really talk actually about like what you meant by insignificant and then discuss like the dichotomy between that insignificance and just the fact that it seems as if like Lebanon's constantly a stage where so many of these bigger meta political debates about the region are playing out in. Okay. So this is, it's a multifaceted question, really. I mean, uh, let's start or the reason why people, if they're going to pay attention to Lebanon, why, why they would pay attention to Lebanon? They would pay attention to Lebanon only because Hezbollah is in Lebanon, right? And Hezbollah represents Iran 
on in the Eastern Mediterranean with a hundred plus thousand projectiles aimed at Israel and Lebanon as a global um, global financial drug narcotics and arms and operational headquarter for Hezbollah and the IRGC from which not just in which from which they can prosecute Iranian operations throughout the region, starting with Syria, for instance, Iraq, Yemen. All of these theaters have a, uh, and, and the actors, the pro-Iranian actors in those theaters have a presence in Lebanon, one way or another, uh, or dealings with Lebanon. That means the Lebanese real estate sector, the Lebanese financial sector, um, uh, everything in Lebanon is uh, uh, infected with this. And it's part of that. So if you're going to deal with Lebanon, then you deal with Lebanon through that lens. But that's not what people mean when they talk about, you know, why they are invested in Lebanon or there. Rather, it comes from something else. And that explains why it is so prominent in the discussion in Washington, D.C., uh, because a there's a there's a Lebanese presence in Washington D.C., but there's also a deep social and emotional involvement by a lot of U.S. bureaucrats in and out of government as they go in in government and out into the think tank world uh, or the private sector, who you know had dealings with the Lebanese, traveled to Lebanon, you know went clubbing, drinking, skiing, uh, you know, made friends and had a wonderful time and were comped and, you know, all that stuff. And this is a long, you know, uh, relationship that they have. And so that becomes, you know, um, a, a motivator, a driver of how they approach Lebanon. And that to me is a very problematic driver for how you approach Lebanon. What, one, word you didn't, one word you didn't mention in there is religious Oh, that was going to be the next thing. Yes. So there is also, with not religious, a sectarian, rather, um, uh, impetus, especially recently with the rise in Washington of these shops that deal with Middle East Christians, right, uh, and advocacy on behalf of Middle East Christians. And all of a sudden you have what is really grotesque sectarian discourse and rhetoric that comes from Lebanon. That's how the Lebanese talk. Now it's imported into Washington in American discourse. And that we have to somehow care about Lebanon because, you know, there's a lot of Christians there in the Middle East. And that should be the foundation for American foreign policy in Lebanon uh, 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 from a sectarian vantage point, which is just completely toxic uh, for American foreign policy. And it's alien to uh, how American foreign policy actually works. Just to give some picture for the listeners, can you talk more about what do you mean by grotesque? What are you alluding to in terms of the way the discourse uh, operates in Lebanon? But Tony, uh, before you uh, before you answer Marshall's questions, let me just tell for our listeners that uh, if you don't mind me outing you in a sectarian fashion, uh, you you yourself are a Lebanese Christian. I just want to make sure that uh, people recognize that when you're making these statements. Um, you're you're not making it from uh, from the point of view of a of, of a different uh, religion. Yeah, I mean, I'm not making a sectarian statement. What I'm saying actually is that this type of 
discourse is actually fundamentally un-American. And that's, that's the whole point. We, uh, and the, the idea that uh, America should start thinking in these categories as it approaches the Middle East. And I'll give you an example of where it played out because one of those grotesque shops in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, had during the Syrian, in the, in the early days of the Syrian war, uh, did a conference in Washington that invited all of uh, a, a bunch of uh, M- Middle Eastern uh, Christian clerics to come to Washington to lobby on behalf of Bashar al-Assad with the administration, okay, the, the dictator of Syria, because he is the protector of Christian minorities in Syria, right? Uh, that is grotesque. For instance, that's what I define as grotesque. And the idea that we should behave in this fashion uh, and that we should, and, and then all of a sudden, like the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Muslims becomes okay in as much as it's being done to protect Christians in Syria. That is grotesque. Uh, that's how I define it. Also, I mean, what you're saying is that uh, I think what you're saying, certainly the way I see it, is that uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and the Syrian regime and Hezbollah, they all have their, uh, they have uh, made great inroads in Washington, D.C. through some Christian channels, working yes. through Syrian and Lebanese Christian groups who are aligned on the ground in Syria and Lebanon with Assad and Hezbollah, and they have got, they have presented uh, they have presented a picture of politics in Syria and uh, uh, and and in Lebanon um, as one of Christians versus Muslims, um, falsely presented it uh, as one of Christians versus Muslims in a way that in a way that has worked to the advantage of the, 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 the Russians and the Iranians. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's the, the propaganda aspect is right, but what's interesting is that the channel or the vehicle for this historically, especially with the Assad regime was always, always, uh, uh, Middle East, Christ, uh, Lebanese Christians, Lebanese Christians, always. So that's a very important, uh, uh, uh sort of, entry point to how this poison seeps into uh, Western societies and and discourse. Uh, Moreover, what makes it all the more grotesque is that in Lebanon, the Christians are uh, aligned with Hezbollah, right? One of the major Christian blocs, along with a a Maronite- You're talking about General Aoun. The president of Lebanon currently and his party, for instance, but not just them, uh, the multiple other parties are openly in an alliance with Aum, including, for instance, like, you know, the Armenian party in Lebanon, directly pro-Iranian. Uh, and the uh, and they're allied with. Uh, and that's when I when I mentioned initially about the election and how people were saying, oh, Hezbollah was defeated. They didn't actually mean that Hezbollah was defeated. What they were talking about is that this party, this Christian party, somehow lost more seats and therefore no longer represents Christians. And that, therefore, it's a category that they created, cannot provide Christian cover 
through its alliance with Hezbollah, which is a meaningless category. As it turns out, I mean, like one think tanker wrote immediately a, a quick analysis saying, oh, they just got 13 seats down from 20. Actually, they got 18 seats. And when you add the Armenians and you add other pro-Hezbollah Christians, they clearly have the bigger block and majority of Christians in Lebanon that are aligned with Hezbollah. So all of this is just DC talk one way or another, and it, and it clouds the mind and it warps of our understanding of true power politics. And that is really the, what I was talking about when I said Lebanon is insignificant. On its own, its internal politics and all of its dramas and tragedies and all of this, they don't affect America in any way. Lebanon, you know, Lebanon is, is relevant only in as much as Hezbollah is relevant through the Iran file as an arm of Iran that threatens American allies. Whatever else happens in Lebanon, its economic collapse, its, its politics, its uh, diaspora and lobbying and, and, and all their tricks and the machinations, none of that, none of that is meaningful to America. Zero. It has zero strategic interest uh, uh, for, for America. You give a really like eloquent explanation of why the sectarian lens is a really dangerous way to approach like the the region, but especially Lebanon specifically. Allow just to hear like your sum up for for listeners who like w- w- what should be the approach? Like what should be the lens that one thinks through these dynamics? So the reason why the sectarian angle is poisonous for America is because it 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 gets a, it warps the brain. It warps our understanding of what dynamics are actually meaningful. Leave, leaving aside the moral aspect of it, which is which is which is really ugly. Um, that, that that this is that somehow I mean we 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 have this problem in America now through identity politics, and we are seeing its effects on social cohesion and and our ability uh, as a society to 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 have any semblance of shared commonality and uh and and just basic touch with reality really uh so and and so that is kind of a manifestation of the sectarian mindset and it's uh it's a it's a deeply ugly destructive uh mindset the notion that america uh, should approach the Middle East from this non-strategic vantage point, from this identity, pseudo-identity type vantage point, uh, it leads you down a path of strategic ruin. Because, for I mean, in, 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 to give a concrete example, American al- alignment with Middle East Christians, specifically Lebanese Christians, let's say, uh, or or Syrian Christians or whatever, by definition, leads you to an American alignment with Iran, by definition. I mean, that actually applies to Lebanon itself, generally speaking. Any American engagement in a Lebanon policy, by definition, leads America to an accommodation with Iran in Lebanon. And that's what the Lebanese want. That's why they they encourage the investment. That's what the Biden administration and the French want the Saudis to do, to underwrite precisely such an accommodation uh, with with uh, uh, Iran Lebanon, and it then puts us at odds with our allies. It puts us at odds with with Israel and Saudi Arabia because the more and that's really the main 
problem with the Hochstein and this whole mediation effort and whatever, right? It places the United States in this role of honest broker, which is, which is, which is very funny. Um, that honest broker and, you know, Hochstein in an interview in Beirut talked about, uh, you know, both sides, right? In this, in this, both sides, it's an, it's sanitized language. Who are the sides? There's Israel and there's Hezbollah. And America is playing honest broker between Israel and Hezbollah, uh, and that somehow we have to be fair. <laughs> Hezbollah needs to get something out of this, and America's role is to is to make sure of that and to pressure the Israelis to give that. Now, the Lebanese game by pulling America into its affairs is designed on purpose to get America to become its advocate against Israel in 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 such. Uh, situations. So rather than America saying, look, our strategic interest here is for the defeat of the Iranians and for our allies to come out on top. If that means that Israel needs to go in, let's say, uh, uh, if we need to sanction Lebanon and Lebanon's economy collapses, that's fine. If we need to, if Israel needs to, you know, take out uh, Hezbollah military installations, which are embedded in uh, civilian areas and other things, that's fine. Uh, uh, you know, the internal drama of Lebanon is no longer of concern. The more you're sucked into it, the more you, uh, the more investments you make in the Lebanese armed forces, in the energy sector, in these diplomatic uh, uh, mediation efforts, the more you're enlisted as an advocate on the behalf of the Lebanese, which means on behalf of Hezbollah, against your allies, be they Saudi Arabia, be they Israel, and so on. So, Tony, why are the Israelis participating in this? Uh, if it's like you say, and I have no doubt that it's that it's I have I have quibbles with you in some of your points. But but basically, you're the picture you have in your head is the picture I have in my head. Why? Why are the Israelis going along with this game? Why are they uh, why are they participating? Why aren't they just saying everything that you're saying? Well, th so there are two ways to answer that um, one one way, which is half true, but not fully true, is that when the Americans come to you and say, we want to do this, you'll do this, right? I mean, that's, you, you want, it's alliance maintenance, especially if you think that at the end of it, we can settle this dispute and be done with the Lebanese, right? Um, uh, that is, uh, you know, assuming, of course, that, you know, you're not asked to pay out of your own pocket which is where Hochstein basically has started to take them because that initial triangle that we talked about, the Hof uh, uh, lines, the 55-45 division. Yeah, under Hochstein, this has become almost, from the Lebanese point, at vantage point at least, but also through what he gave them, uh, pretty much gives all of it to the Lebanese. So now the Lebanese are saying, we want all of it, but also we would like a carve-out below the line of 23, below that triangle, so that there's this prospective field in there that we want for us by ourselves. We don't want to share it with the Israelis, right? So take that to the Israelis and let the Israelis give you more of their waters so that we don't have to have these shared resources. Now, I'm not advocating shared resources. The idea, which, which is what Hochstein had initially given uh, in a proposal, that the Lebanese and the Israelis share a field it's absurd. You're entangling Israel with Hezbollah. That's why Israel should have said no. But here's the problem. In Israel, there are a lot of people, and Israel is not immune to very 
clever but not very smart people uh, uh, who are who will come out and say, well, this is actually good. The more invested Hezbollah is, the more they have something to lose. And therefore, especially as other companies come in and invest in them, they will be more reluctant to wage war against us because they'll have stuff to lose. Of course, I mean, if you hold out every other example where this logic has been used in Israel's relationships with the Arabs, you'll see that it's, I mean, it's absolute nonsense. In fact, the, the logic of investment dictates, nobody's going to go to Hezbollah and tell Hezbollah, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Everyone's going to go to Israel and tell Israel, you need to stop destroying because we have investments in Lebanon. That's how it actually works, right? So the notion of embroiling Israel with Hezbollah in a shared investment is crazy for Amer- as an idea for America to be, to be pursuing. Uh, and even now, even if they do, if the Lebanese get this little carve out that they want, Uh, Such a proposal is going to set the stage for future crises. It doesn't end there because there is another block in Israeli waters in that very region called Block 72, which is adjacent to Karish and right underneath that line 23 where that protrusion is from the Lebanese. Sorry, Karish Karish is? Sorry, the Karish field is the northern Israeli field where now there's a Greek uh, a company, energy company that is uh, uh, that has a, a a vessel that is about to start extraction from that field in a couple of months, um, and that was a big deal because the Lebanese were claiming that th- those waters were disputed, and Hezbollah came out and made threats that if the ship makes those uh, 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 starts production, that they will target it, and so on and so forth. And that threat is what got Amos Hochstein to come back to Beirut. So, uh, and now, de facto, by taking this offer from the Lebanese, he's using effectively Hezbollah's threat by proxy to tell the Israelis, you need to, you know, this is, this is what the Lebanese are offering. Hey, look, they backed away from their maximalist claim. They just want that little thing, uh, do, would you agree to offer it? So now Hochstein is effectively carrying Hezbollah's message to the to the Israelis uh, is is what is what this this thing really amounts to. And uh, so, like I said, the the Israelis unfortunately, on the one hand, don't want to say no, especially this weak government in Israel uh, does not want to say no, does not want to appear, uh, you know, to be the one that broke off this uh, effort. And unfortunately, there are very bad ideas in Israel about, uh, among people, some people in Israel, not everyone in Israel, about how, uh, you know, uh, economic investment could alter the calculus of Hezbollah. All the same ideas that affect, uh, infect American thinking, uh, all the bad ideas that infect American thinking about moderating Iran, moderating Hezbollah, yes. they also operate in some circles in Israel. Absolutely. And this is the funny thing, right, for for. When I say that, you know, the Americans proposed shared resources with Israel, and I and I, I point out that that could actually start again with Block 72, this is not viewed necessarily as a negative in, in D.C., right? The more entangled, the more we need to get the Israelis to talk to Hezbollah, that, that somehow becomes a positive thing, potentially, yeah. you know, for diplomacy and, and all of that. So it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, it, it's a different approach to the world, one that is, I think, detached from reality. I heard uh, the uh, famous uh, uh, famous uh, expert on Yiddish literature, uh, Ruth Weiss, quoted, I think it was Isaac Basheva Singer over the weekend, 
saying uh, uh, a prayer, God, please save us from the cruelty of the Goyim and the cleverness of the Jews. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. On, on that note uh, that Tony can do quite a lot with, thank you so much for joining us on, on Counterbalance. I think that we've given folks a bunch of different rabbit holes to go down if they want to go deeper on this topic. But I think once again, I think we found a way to, I think, go deep, but also take a step back and look at the broader picture. So thank you for uh, coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Tony. That's all we have here Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.